Amen. Good morning. If you guys will stand with us, uh, we get to sing to our God and, and say not that our strength is enough or uh, our goodness is enough, but that his grace is enough. Uh, so if you guys will sing this out with us.
you sing now with us? Feel free to put your hands together if you like to. No. 
Amen. Good to hear you guys. You guys can take a seat. If you'll bow with me, and I'm going to do something a little different. If, you're, if you've still got good knees and you're capable, I would encourage you just to even bow down on your knees. This is a biblical posture of worship, but we want to enter into a time of, of confession. Um, I'm going to get down on my knees, uh, but this is something people do to show their humility before God. Um, if you can't do that, you can just lay your head on the seat in front of you or whatever you need to do. But let's bow and confess before God. Father God, we come before you not just celebrating your greatness, but humbled by it, overwhelmed with how awesome you are, how great you are. And Lord, we don't often express that in our bodies, but we pray um, that we would recognize that, that we're sinners, that we far fall short of the glory and the beauty and the amazing lives that you've created us to lead, uh, that we often don't love each other the way that we should. We often make wrong choices instead of choosing uh, to honor you and to celebrate you and to enter into the ultimate party that you've called us to uh, of honoring you along with creation. Uh, Father, so we confess that before you. We humble ourselves before you and we pray that you would lift us up as we continue to worship, we recognize that it's only by your work on our behalf that we can enter into your presence, that you saved us, that you picked us back up, and you transform us so that we can be of use to you. And so as we continue to sing, as we continue to worship, Lord, help us to be assured of your grace and your forgiveness, and help us to celebrate and to party and to remember you in every day of our life. We pray this for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing these words with us. Of the blood of Jesus. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
for giving yourself to us. God, when we were helpless and hopeless, God, you provided help and hope. God, we thank you so much for your mercy to us. God, though, though there's no way we could ever deserve it, Lord, we get to know you, be known by you. God, I pray that you will help us to be a people of love and obedience. God, help us to show our love to you in obedience. Help us to give ourselves to you give ourselves away to others in your name. Thank you so much for everything you've given us. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, you can open up your Bibles if you have one to Matthew 22. If you don't have one, we have some extra ones under the chairs, and you're welcome to grab one of those. Um, in those black Bibles, I think we're somewhere around 825, 26, somewhere in that range in the 800s, but it's Matthew chapter 22, and we're continuing our series called Kingdom Come, in which we uh, look at Jesus coming uh, to the world, coming to Israel specifically, and we've seen in these last few chapters this ongoing conflict with the religious leaders, and we see Jesus not really pulling his punches anymore, but just, just kind of bringing it harder and harder. And we've looked over the last few weeks at, at kind of his ownership and authority over Jerusalem and over uh, the religious leadership of, of Israel. And so we've looked at the king's house. He came in and he cleaned house and he kind of threw everybody out and saw the king's garden and how God's desire has always been that we would be fruitful and that we would be this garden. And, and uh, kind of going back even to Eden, that we would uh, be people that bear fruit in the world. And this week we're going to look at the king's party. And uh, we, we were talking about the image this week. Chris does the images for me. And uh, we were kind of talking about the tension of all the party images that we found, making us a little nervous because a lot of them were kind of like nightclub, bar, drinking, dancing pictures. And, you know, as, as uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, we are not supposed to be about any of that. Um, and I think there's this resistance that we have, you know, as Christians, especially in our kind of tradition, whatever tradition this is, the non-traditional tradition. Um, but we... Uh, we kind of push back a little bit from partying. You know, we know that we're not supposed to, you know, go wild and, and be completely sinful and overindulge. And so we kind of take a few steps back and we don't really know how to party and how to celebrate God himself and how to uh, uh, worship and really make all of life a party because I think that's what God calls us to. Um, a lot of theologians like to say that, that even going back to the very beginning, uh, that the theological logic is that we're really... A humanity is birthed out of the laughter and the celebration of the Trinity, out of the perfect love and perfect relationship that the Trinity has within itself. And that's a little mind-blowing, right? Um, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this perfect love relationship, and so our community, our love, our celebration grows out of that. Um, and there's, there's other images throughout the scriptures as well. When we first see the, the people of Israel being formed in the Exodus, they're called out. You know, they were slaves, and God says, I'm going to take you slaves. I'm going to set you free and make you a people, and you're going to be part of my solution to save the world, which doesn't seem like a real smart idea, but somehow God is still doing that with broken slaves that he's setting free. And when he does that, and he calls out this people in Exodus, in chapter 19, right before he gives them the law in 20, in 19, he has this big party with the elders and the leaders of the people. He calls them up onto this mountain, and he meets with them somehow. We don't understand how all that works, but God meets with the leaders and with Moses, and he has this fellowship meal, and they have this celebration this feast. When you look at the prophets, as you skim throughout all the Bible and just read the prophets, 
at one level, they're condemning Israel for not being who they're supposed to be. But then there's always this glimmer of hope in the prophets that we look forward to this day, the end of the world, the end of all things, whatever, whenever that's going to be, the messianic time, when, when the Messiah, when the Savior comes, that, that this party, this rejoicing, this celebration will be there. And you've got these crazy phrases like in Isaiah 55 where it says that the trees of the forest will clap their hands. And, and we get some of the imagery that, that we sang in that second song today about all of creation celebrating God. And all of creation understands the party, but we, we don't, right? We, we don't join in the party. We don't celebrate like we should. And so we've got this party imagery, this banquet imagery. We even see in the Gospel of John that the first miracle that Jesus performs is to turn gallons and gallons and gallons of water into wine at a wedding celebration. Uh, the word for wedding in the New Testament is a word that doesn't just mean marriage ceremony, uh, but it means party. I mean, it means feast. It means banquet hall. It's like all those things wrapped up in one word. Uh, and in today's language, I think sometimes we think wedding and we just think boring 30-minute ceremony, right? We think kind of this formal stiff time. Um, but probably you've been to a wedding that was a party. It was done right. Anybody? Anybody been to one that really was? Yeah, it was a big party. I went. To, I performed one back in. Uh, when was that? Janice was there too doing music. It was July, right? And uh, you know, my part was stiff and formal. But then after that, it got. I mean, it just got to be good. And there was this great party and long celebration, and people dancing and having fun. So all that is, is background to Jesus here in chapter 22 saying the kingdom of heaven is like this wedding party. It's like this great feast. So let's read this, 22 verses 1 through 14. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the first few verses, and then we'll read the rest of them as we go through, because I know I'm pushing time today. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Basically, he's always given these stories that say the kingdom of heaven is like this. So these little stories of comparison to show us, to give us a window into heaven. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So a king, it's great proportions, it's the king, not just some regular Joe, but it's the king preparing this great and incredible party, this great and wonderful feast for his son. Let's pray and we'll, we'll move on. Father, teach us today. We have uh, some difficult things to look at some difficult pieces in this puzzle, um, and we pray that you would just draw us in to your party, that we would understand what you want from us, and even more importantly than that, that we would understand what you have done for us, that you make the party possible. And so, Father, we just pray that we would have open hearts, that you would teach us, that we wouldn't be distracted, but that we would hear your word speaking to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my family had the opportunity to go to Pine Cove Family Camp Summer, which was really awesome. Someone had just given us the gift of, of a free week there. And basically, it's like summer camp for kids, but the whole family gets to go. So you have some stuff with your family together, some stuff where adults do this and kids do that. And it's just a great, great time. Um, and we really loved it. And, and one of the cool things about this atmosphere and the way they do family camp is they've just got like all these really sweet, godly Christian college kids all tanked up on caffeine, right? And, and they're just like jumping up and down and insane and happy and excited that you're there the whole time. I mean, they're just going nuts. I mean, you, you pull into the parking lot and people are like, woo, you're here and celebrating and they run up to your car and you're like, hello. You know, you're a little scared at first, you know, like 
are they going to just like kidnap my children or what's going on here? You know, I mean, they're just like yelling and jumping up and down and like, you go here and we'll take your bags and you get your coffee over here. And they just, they're just taking care of you and they're trying to encourage you to celebrate. They're trying to encourage you to relax. Um, and I have to say, I, I used to be a youth pastor. So at one time there was some fun and some spunk in my life, but, but over the years, over the years, it's kind of like it settled, you know, I started to get a little older. I started to get a little more skeptical, a little more cynical and and I've realized over the years that I just, I don't rejoice, I don't engage, I don't get excited as easily probably as, as I used to be. Um, and really that's, that's probably sin in my life, honestly. I mean, I, I, need, to, I need to celebrate. I mean, there's, I'm working on a memory verse for this year, actually in Philippians, it says, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. It's, it's this verse where he repeats it and that's, that's part of it. So I'm trying to learn that for myself in Philippians 4, that, that we should rejoice. We should be people that, that party and celebrate what God's doing in the world. Um, and at camp, um, they, they kind of drew us in. You know, at first, we were scared. We thought it was kind of weird. We thought it was crazy. They were screaming and yelling the whole time. But it, but it starts to get infectious, you know? Like, it starts to draw you in until you can't really resist it anymore. And by, like, the third or fourth night, they had me doing, like, this Hannah Montana dance where we're doing the motions and we're, we're turning around and everything. And I was like, what has happened to me? You know, it's like, like I've been carried away. I'm not myself anymore. And I think that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this incredible party that a king gives, I mean, it's not just a wedding. Again, I think we have this cultural baggage of, it's like this boring 30-minute wedding ceremony. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, picture the, the big, you know, six-hour wedding reception that you've been to. You know, where you're sitting there all cynical at your table, but then the Congo line goes by and you're like, all right, I'm jumping in, and you, get, you jump in too. I mean, that, that's the picture he's trying to paint here. It's this, it's this wedding, this party, this celebration, this feast that draws us in, and we can't, we can't resist anymore. And he says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Imagine the most important person in the country giving the biggest party he's ever given. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he wants to draw us into the party. He doesn't want us to resist and just stand on the side and go, yeah, whatever, I don't want that. But, but he wants us to come in to the party. And I think there's obvious like future implications here. Obviously, heaven is the ultimate party, and he draws us to that. But throughout scriptures, again, like my memory verse for the year, we're told to rejoice. Again, we are, we're told to, to, to celebrate and to join in the party now. Um, and that doesn't, you know, I just don't, I don't just mean drinking and dancing. It's a metaphor for all of life, celebrating to God, honoring him, worshiping him, celebrating who he is. And so when we look at this, I want us to kind of break it down in, into the different sections. And, the, and we have like different reactions to the party. So as this parable unfolds, we'll get uh, the first kind of group of people that refuse the party. And so the first section, we're calling that refusing the party. And we see that in verses three through five. So in 3 through 5, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like this, this big party the king throws for his son. In verse 3, he sent his servants to those who had been invited already to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. They're saying those who had already passed and been invited, they've already given their RSVPs. We're coming, king. Thank you for inviting us. We'll be there. Sends his servants out, and this is kind of the custom of that day. Then the servants would go out and say, okay, now is the time for the party. You know, it wasn't quite like how we run everything on a clock, you know, where the invitation would say you know, 2 p.m., this date, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the king would send out invitations, say the party's happening this month, and then he sends out the servants, and the servants say, okay, it's now. We're getting it ready. The barbecue is on. Let's go. So he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. 
but they refuse to come. So there's some that God invites to the party and they refuse. They say, no, I don't want to go in. And, and why do they say that? Well, in verse four, it says, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. It's, it's all ready. Come in to the banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field and another to his business. And I think that's the same way that we refuse the party too, right? We say, I've got, I've got work to do. I've got my business that I'm about. I don't have time for your party, God. I don't have time for whatever you're trying to draw me in. I've got my own things to do. And so we refuse the king of the universe saying, I'm holding the biggest party there's ever been. I'm the king. Come in, enjoy my grace and my favor and my celebration. And we say, no, I've, I've got more important things to do. I've got a field to take care of. I've got this business that, that I'm about. And, and that's more important than your party, God. That's more important than what you are calling me to do. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, and he talks about, I've got a little picture there to go with it. There's a kid making mud pies, right? Kid playing in the mud. Of course, that is a lot of fun. But C.S. Lewis says that in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, he says that when we refuse God, it's like a child saying, I'd rather go on making mud pies in a slum rather than uh, enjoy a vacation at sea or, you know, or a cruise or this great holiday. But that's what it's like when we refuse God. We say, I'd rather be about my mud pies. I'd rather not uh, enter into the greatest pleasure imaginable. And like I said, making mud pies is fun, right? I mean, any of you remember? Some of you are pretty old, but you probably remember, right? I mean, making mud pies is fun. There's great pleasures in this world. My field, my business, what I'm about, I've got fun things that I do. There's fun stuff that I take part in. I have pleasure in my stuff. But he's saying the king's party is better. He's not saying your mud pies aren't fun. He's saying the vacation at sea is much funner than the mud pies. There's ultimate pleasure awaiting us. The ultimate party is before us, and that's what he's trying to draw us into. He's not telling us that what we're doing isn't fun, but he's telling us what he's inviting us to is, is far better, is far greater. And we just say, no, I've got my stuff. I've got my business. I've got my field, and we refuse the party. And what I want us to see now in the next verse is that it's not just a passive, peaceful refusal to go into the party. Um, we can't just kind of make ourselves feel better and say, I haven't really shaken my fist at God. I've just told him I'm too busy right now. Well, well, Jesus connects those two things. Telling God you're too busy for him right now is shaking your fist at him. And we see that in the next verse, in verse 6. It says, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So we've got in verse 5, they said, no, no, we don't have time. We've got, we've got our stuff. We've, we've got our own business to take care of God. And the rest, in verse 6, seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And there's a warning here. It doesn't go well for them. In the, in the different sections we're going to look at, we see different reactions, and then we see the king's reaction to those reactions. It doesn't go well for them at all. In verse 7, it says the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Ouch, that sounds bad. That, that doesn't fit our view of... Well, I've got better things to do, God. I've got my business to take care of, and I'll get around to you later. He's saying, no, that's, that's refusing the party. And it's really, there's two choices. There's enter into the ultimate party, or there's refuse, rebel, shake your fist at God, and be destroyed. I mean, really, those are the two choices. That's, that's the choices that Jesus 
paints for us. He paints this antithesis, this huge gap, this, this chasm between following him and entering his party and, and refusing him. So even though our excuses sound rational to us, right? They sound good. Yeah, I've got this important hobby I need to attend to, or I've got this important business, or I, you know, I really need to find myself, God, right now, and, and I'll mess with you later. You know, whatever it is, we, we have all these excuses we make up. I really need a little more control in my life. Um, I, I've got these friends that are really important. Whatever it may be, we have our business, and we say, I, I can mess with you later. There will be some other party, right? And, and a good... A good indicator, a self-evaluation tool, if, if you're doing this, it is really you see that, that the thing that you think you're kind of being nice and, yeah, I've got my stuff to do, it is connected really to the areas where you get most angry, where you do mistreat the servants and kill them, you know, where, where you blow up. I mean, I mean, what are the areas where you get most frustrated? What are the areas in your life when your anger flares up the most or when your depression gets the deepest? or when your frustration is the worst? Where are those areas where you see those emotional flare-ups? Those are the red flags. And those are the areas where you're saying, my business is more important, back off. You know, don't, don't touch this. This is more important. I don't, I don't have time for your party. I need this. This is the only way I know how to celebrate. It's the only way I know how to have fun. And I don't, I don't want you messing with my stuff. And, and we push God away. We become violent, we become angry, whatever it may be, we become inward, we, we yell outwardly. We all have our different emotional reactions, but it, wherever you see those flare-ups, that's a good indicator that that's become an idol in your life, and that's become something that you're more interested in holding on to than, than joining into the party that God invites you to. And again, he's speaking to these religious leaders, and so I think we can understand that, that this makes a lot of sense to religious people. And if you're, if you're in church, you're at least vaguely religious. You're at least vaguely interested. Or you know somebody that is. But, but God is saying religion can be just as much of a distraction as irreligion, as non-religion. Religion can just be one more way to be about your own business and not accept the invitation that the king extends to you to come on in. The next thing we see is people entering the party. Entering the party in, in verses 8, 9, and 10. So he, he has another plan. The party's going to continue. The party's not going to just stop because people refuse. The king is still going to have the party, whether you go in or not. And so he says in verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. The party was packed. The music was booming. People were celebrating. Life was good. And I want you to, to catch how, how culturally shocking this was. This would be like, ladies, just imagine going, I think I'm going to have an afternoon tea and some quiche with some friends, but I'm going to go downtown and just invite a bunch of hobos in. And I'm going to use my fine china, my delicate dishes and my white whatevers. And, and I'm just going to invite in a bunch of dirty, scary, stinky people that I really don't want in my house. I'm just going to invite them in and invite them to join the party. And that's, that's the picture here. The king, the king in all his finery says, I'm going to have a party. Just invite anybody you can get to come in. Just invite anybody. And, it, and it's shocking. It's culturally shocking. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit our understanding of how things should work. 
Grace is always a surprise. If you really understand what God is about in the world, if you really understand his salvation, how his kingdom works, it's going to be a little shocking. It's going to be surprising. Those that are in are those that don't think they deserve to be in. Those that think they deserve to be in are the ones that say, God, I've, I've got more important things to do. I don't really have time for you right now. But if you don't think you deserve to be in, if you think you're just the random bum out on the street that's getting invited in, you're like, how did I get here? How, how did I get into this party? Then you understand grace. Then you understand how God works, how he lifts up the humble, how he invites in those that shouldn't be invited, the good and the bad, no matter who you are. I grabbed a picture of a, a little girl at a birthday party because I just had this image in my mind of the surprise party, you know? I don't know if any of y'all have participated in a surprise party where everybody's like hiding under the couch and you park two cars three blocks away and the person comes in and you're like, surprise! You know, and they're like, oh, they get all scared and, and they're just amazed to be there. And there's this shock that we should feel when we understand God's grace. Like, I can't believe this. This is, this is crazy. He loves me. Doesn't he, doesn't he know everything? Doesn't he know what I did back then and back there and who I really am? Yeah, he knows. And he invites you in. He's, he's taking care of your sin. I mean, that's what the cross is about, is him taking our sin and putting it on Jesus and taking Jesus' righteousness and putting it on you and inviting you into the party. If, if you're bitter towards God right now, if you're bitter at him for not throwing the kind of party that you think he should have thrown or, or not treating you the way you think he should have treated you, there's a, a good chance you don't understand grace because none of us deserve the party. None of us deserve to be in there. And this is especially hard for religious people because you've probably been taught that if you do everything right and you do the ABCs of religious life, that God's going to bless you, right? That everything's going to go great. And that's not a promise. That's a proverb. That's how the world often works. When you work hard and you do the right things, things turn out. But that's not a promise. The promise is none of you deserve it. None of you deserve life. None of us deserve life. None of us deserve blessing. But God gives us blessing. And he even brings us in to this party to share it with other people. None of us deserve it. So if you're surprised, if you're shocked by it, that's good. You should be. You should be shocked by God's grace. You should be shocked that he's invited you into the party. And that should cause you to celebrate. That should cause us to celebrate. Our life should be a life of of celebration. Well, the last section we see is those leaving the party. There's some that have been pulled into this party and then they're thrown out. We see this in 11, 12, 13. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, Throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. There's this cultural concept that you would be dressed appropriately for the party, right? Uh, that you would honor the people throwing the party by wearing your best. Um, there's even some research. Some people say that the person that threw the party would even offer you the right clothes for the party, you know? So you didn't, kind of like if you're a wedding attendant, how a lot of times they might cover your rental um, that happens sometimes, not always. But, you know, that, that sometimes culturally they would provide for you so you would have proper attire. 
So that even if you were the person that was the bum on the street that didn't have the clothes to wear, they'd say, here, I've got some party clothes for you. And so the king comes and he finds one that's not dressed for the party. And I, and I had an example of, of a uh, kind, of, kind of dress, kind of clothing that could damn you to hell here. Um, if you can see that picture. That was the 80s hair band Striper, um, a, a Christian rock band. It just still scares me to this day to see them in those costumes. Um, now, I just wanted to set this up in contrast because I don't think what he's saying is if you wear the wrong outfit, you're going to be thrown out and go to hell, okay? I don't think like just, he, he doesn't mean wearing an ugly outfit like that. I think really what he means is speaking more metaphorically, um, that throughout scripture, of course, we, we wear clothes to cover our shame, right? And we see that even going back to the, uh, to the garden where, where God clothes them they're, for the first time after they sin, they realize they're naked, there's the shame that they have. And so really wearing clothes and the need for clothes is a result of the fall and that we, we have this shame now. And, and so what happens is God clothes them. And that metaphor is picked up throughout the New Testament, that, that we have clothing that we're given to cover our shame. And, and there's two ways of having the wrong clothes at the wedding party, I think. Um, there, there's one way where we make our own clothes, right? Where we sew our own outfit, and we, we talk about that being legalism. Where we say, okay, I'm going to do my own religion, and I'm going to make up my rules, and, and I'm going to be successful in this little universe that I'm going to create and make my own party outfit. And he says, no, that's not the outfit that I've provided for the party. And the other side is, is just not wearing the appropriate clothes at all. And that we call that sometimes license or um, just kind of doing whatever you want, you know, rebellion. That, that's, that's rejecting religion altogether. But really, there are two different ways of rejecting Jesus and the clothing that he gives us. He offers to cover us himself. In Colossians 3, it says we are hidden with Christ in God. So that when Christ appears, it's no longer us who appears, but Christ who appears with him. Let me read it to you in Colossians 3. It says, since then you've been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's saying, saying think about the, rea- the heaven reality, heavenly reality. Not, not the sin that we live in every day, but think about the reality of how God sees us, and this is how God sees it. In verse 2, it says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, so the old you is, is gone. The old shameful you has died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And in Colossians, that clothing metaphor is, is continued, you know. So there's the permanent clothing we're hidden in Christ. And that metaphor just continues throughout the New Testament. In Christ. We are only safe in Christ. We only can stand before God because we are in Christ. We are covered by him. So that by faith, if we trust in what he's done for us, God sees us through the perfection of Jesus. Instead of seeing our sin and our shame, he sees us covered, clothed, perfect in the robes of righteousness perfect in Christ. We're, we're protected in him. We're covered in him. But often we, we try to do it on our own, right? We try to do our own thing. We, we come in and I think, that's, I think that's what that last verse means. It's so confusing and so difficult in verse 14 where it says, for many are invited but few are chosen. Many are invited but few are chosen. And this is a difficult theological concept that, that God would choose people because our minds just rush ahead, right, to some kind of puppet master God that, that controls the universe and, and it's all fate and we don't really do anything. And I, I think that's a lot of times where people run to in their minds logically. Well, either I'm in control of the universe because I have free will or God's in control of the universe and it's all fate and I'm a robot, right? And we kind of throw it out into those two extremes. And that's not the picture that the Bible 
paints, the Bible indeed paints the idea that God is absolutely in control of the universe. And we're only saved because of his initiative and what he's done. But the Bible also says that we are absolutely responsible. We are not robots. We're not just driven by fate. But, but we have choices to make. We are real actors in this drama. We, we really participate. And so the question is, how do those two things interact? And I don't know that I have real good, solid answers. There, there's different ways that we resist, right? There's different ways that we resist it in different ways. I mean, one, one way we resist this idea of, of God choosing us is we say, well... He doesn't really choose us, and we just kind of try to ignore it altogether and don't think about it, right? That's the put-it-out-of-your-mind style of theology, which is not the best way to do theology, I don't think. I think it's better to actually deal with it and look at what the Bible says and struggle with it and wrestle with it. And there's another way where we reconcile it, where we go, well, um, whenever it says that God predestined us or chose us or elected us, that really what that means is that God kind of cheats and runs forward, and he can see the future, and he sees that we're going to choose him, and then he runs back in time, and then he chooses us back in time. And I, that, that's difficult for me. And, and I don't want to, to make fun of that because I know some people that's just the, that's the best way you can make sense of it. And I don't think there's a real easy way to make sense of it. But I think no matter how you try to make sense of it, it's kind of a paradox. And I think the Bible just kind of leaves us hanging with this. God is really in control and God initiates salvation because the, the choosing that we really do left to ourselves is hell. We choose to be about our own business. We choose to do our own thing. But it's God coming after us, going and inviting us when we didn't want to go to the party. We're just the hobo sitting on the street. And he goes after us and says, come into my party. And he pulls us into the party. And we respond in faith. And somehow we're, we're really choosing him. We're really, we're really falling in love with him. It's real. I mean, we have real responsibility. We're really involved in this. But like I said, it's a, it's a paradox. I don't, I don't understand how that all works out. How does... How does God initiate without us not really being choosers in this process? I don't know. I don't have answers for you in detail. But I do know in John 6, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In Romans 9, it talks about this idea. In Ephesians 1, it talks about this idea. Ephesians 1 is really telling because in Ephesians 1, it's basically one long run-on sentence. It's like one sentence. It's 15 verses long. And it's just... God blesses us, God blesses us, God blesses us, God blesses us. And, and part of that whole component is his choosing of us. But it's in the midst of this package of blessing that God is a God of grace that blesses us beyond what we deserve. We don't deserve him. But he blesses us anyway. And the, one of the ways that I personally live with this and, and make sense of it is just the idea of adoption. That when you think about choosing, connect that to the idea that it's the Bible says that God adopts us. When we trust in him, we are his adopted children. That he chooses us, that he loves us. And I think really every place that the Bible talks about God's choosing or his foreknowledge or his predestination, they're all ways of assuring us. When we feel like the universe is spinning out of control, when we're dying of some disease, or we've lost a friend, or we've lost a job, or nothing seems to be working, that we can rest in the reality that somehow God is working all these things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's really what Romans 8 says with all of us. Romans 8 puts it into that perspective that it's about God's love for us. In Romans 8, picking up in 29, right after that verse about God working all things out for good, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? What then shall we say in response to this? And this is where we're given. Okay, what's, what is the biblical response to this? We can say, I'm confused. I don't understand it. We can say, God, I don't like this because it sounds like you're in control and I'd rather be in control of this process. Um, there's a lot of responses we can say, and this is the response that we're given in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this in Romans 8:31? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, so all of this, this idea that God is somehow in control of the universe, all of it is, is placed in the context of a God that loves us. It's not this puppet master God kind of making random decisions, but it's a God who loves us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the context. And I'm sorry that I don't have better philosophical answers for how freedom and, and sovereignty and all these things work out together. I wish I did. But, but what I rest in, what I hope in, is that God is for us. That he displayed that most ultimately by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And that's the ultimate reality that we're given. That's the ultimate image of God that we're given. When we looked at the book of Colossians last year, we saw that, that that's the image that God gives us. That yes, Jesus is creator with the Father, but he's also redeemer who was willing to die for us. And that's the image that he wants us to see of him. If God is for us, who can be against us? And it goes on in Romans 8. I think it's a great place to camp out for a while. If you're struggling with this, trying to understand this, a great way to, a great place to just read in the scriptures and meditate. It goes on about uh, can famine or nakedness or hardship or all these things separate us from the love of Christ. No, none of those things can separate us from him. Knowing that he's in control enables us to endure suffering, enables us to trust that he loves us even when it doesn't look like it in the here and now. As we conclude and just think about what it means uh, to be part of the party. I want to go back to Colossians 3, this theme of being clothed in Christ, and then that, that changing the way we live. And it talks about it as a process in Colossians 3. It's, it's both a point in time for those of you that are, that are believers in Christ. You've died in Him, and now you're clothed in Him. You're hidden in Him. But it also goes on and says, so therefore, every day that you get up, go ahead and put on the, the right clothes. Put on compassion. Put on love. Put on forgiveness. And it goes on in Colossians 3, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. This is the ultimate party, is that we would be a singing people that would celebrate and, and make music in our hearts to God. And there's a parallel passage to this in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 5.18. It says, yeah, be filled with this music in your heart. And don't be drunk with wine, which leads you to sin, but be filled with the Spirit. So, so the party that we're to, to be a part of is, is a kind of drunkenness. But it's not the drunkenness that leads us to sin. It's not the earthly drunkenness we're familiar with from alcohol, but it's a drunkenness in the Spirit, being filled with Him, being overwhelmed so that our inhibitions are taken away. So it's not, no longer about us, but it's about him, about celebrating who he is. And that translates us into having lives of compassion, having lives of love, having lives of forgiveness, being able to give ourselves 
for others. And, and that's what it looks like to party, to celebrate him, to not have inhibitions anymore, but just to turn it loose. It's not just a, a physical, visible thing of, of dancing and partying, but it's putting on compassion and love and forgiveness and being drunk and filled with him and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would fill us, that we would be overwhelmed, that we would be overflowing with your superabundant grace. Lord, we thank you that you've invited us to the party. We confess that so often we've refused to go in. And Lord, I pray that none of us would be thrown out because we're wearing the wrong clothes. We're wearing either our our clothes of self-righteousness or our clothes of of rebellion and, and not caring at all but that we would be wearing the clothes of Christ, that we would be hidden in him, covered by what he's done for us, and that we would then enjoy the party with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If y'all will stand with us, we're going to sing one last song. And this is actually a song about that talks about the dedication of the temple and I guess another party that, that was had a long time ago. And, and basically as the Israelites came and worship God in the temple for the first time. Um, And so we remember their words when they said, you are good and your love endures today. And that echoes forward to to us now. Um, So let's sing this out. Thank you. 
good to us, and I pray that we would leave here assured and amazed and just blown away and drunk on your love. pray that you would change us, that we would live differently, that we would give ourselves to each other out of the fullness that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.